Hello, one and all, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. We're very grateful to you for listening in. We trust that this podcast is a blessing to you. If it is, uh, then you can follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or with thanks to Media Gratii, who produce these podcasts, you can find us at www.mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can sign up for a, uh, a weekly newsletter where not only will you get the uh, full scheme of reading, the sermon a day, but you'll also get this featured sermon where once a week we try to zero in on a particular sermon, especially for those who may not be able to manage the full reading schedule. And our reading schedule this week is carrying us from sermons 395 to 401, and the featured sermon is 401. Jacob's Waking Exclamation, a sermon that was delivered on Sunday morning, the 21st of July, 1861, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Genesis 28, verse 16, is our text. Jacob awaked out of his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. As so often, here is Spurgeon, able to zero in on a particular idea or emphasis in the text, In this case, Jacob's exclamation, surely the Lord is in this place. Now, Spurgeon uh, is aiming at that uh, particular idea that the Lord is in this place, and he gives us a very brief introduction, sets it in context, and that's worth remembering that when Spurgeon preaches in this way, he's not ignorant of the wider context, often very much aware of it and understands the verse in its proper place. But then he zeroes in, focuses on a particular idea. And his point here is that Jacob seems to have been somewhat surprised by the fact that God was in that place. He says, I knew it not. And Spurgeon wants us to remember that God is in every place. He wants to identify these three points then, the doctrine of the omnipresence of God, then the recognition of that omnipresence or the spirit which we need to cultivate in order to discover or appreciate the presence of God, and thirdly and practically, the results of a recognition of this omnipresence. So what he gives you here is a very rich, high theology, what we might call theology proper, the study of the Godhead, but also uh, an eminently practical study of God's omnipresence. So then three basic headings and uh, this straightforward approach. The doctrine of God's omnipresence, that he is everywhere. That's what omnipresence means. It means to be in every place. And Spurgeon divides up that consideration into three specific fields. He is there in nature, he is there in providence, and he is there in his kingdom of grace. So the kingdom of nature, the kingdom of providence, the kingdom of grace. And that's not uh, an excessively artificial distinction. He would appreciate that there are overlaps in all of these things, uh, but he's trying to order it for us so that we can follow along clearly. So he begins by reminding us that Satan is not co-equal in his power with God, that this is a, a still a, a problem 
that there is today. Spurgeon talks about it as being in the early Christian church, but there are teachings today which seem to suggest that God is always playing catch-up with regard to his government of all things, that he is not in every place, that he has to uh, try and work out what is going on. It's a, It impugns, it, it tramples upon so much of what God truly is and what he has revealed himself to be. And so Spurgeon now goes on the assault. He says, let us see how God is present in the kingdoms of nature, providence and grace, so that we may say of each spot, surely God is in this place. And we'll move fairly rapidly through this, that God is everywhere in the fields of nature. He says, go if you want to the secluded parts, walk through the forest glades where the virgin moss presents a delicate carpet for human foot. Uh, it's a, you know, one of those sort of Victorian sounding illustrations or uh, descriptions that he uses. But he says, when you are there, you should recognize that God is in that place. You will, you will not be alone in your thoughts, because you will see God at work when you are properly looking in everything that is around you in the kingdom of nature. God may be forgotten by so many others, but he is not forgotten by the man who has eyes to see. But, says Spurgeon, this isn't just some kind of rural idyll. God is as much present in the midst of the cities as he is out in the countries. And I think that's an important point because uh, Spurgeon will, will make a couple of uh, observations on this later on, that when people say they met with God, very often it's simply a sense of the sublime that is cultivated in the wide open spaces or in the forest glades or on the mountain peaks. Spurgeon wants us to understand that God is as much uh, there in what he says crowded Cheapside or thronging borough or noisy Whitechapel as though you were far away alone on the wild prairie or in some desert of Africa where footprint of man could not be perceived. Everywhere you go, God is present in that place with regard to nature. But then the emphasis shifts to the kingdom of providence and again the Christian rejoices that God is there. There is no point in history at which God was not present and at which God was not governing. So from the very beginning, when man first came out of Eden, God was present and God was working. You go through the, uh, the challenges of the church, you go through the uh, seasons of persecution and martyrdom in different places, but God is everywhere, even when man is most in his sin and blasphemy. He is reigning over rebels themselves and those who seem to defy and to overturn his will. Remember, says Spurgeon, always that in history, however dreadful may seem the circumstance of the narrative, surely God is in that place. Now, he's moving perhaps a touch beyond omnipresence here. Uh, he's touching now on omnipotence, that is that God is all-powerful, his omnipotence. Um, there's something here of the wisdom of God in governing all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, so you've got God's all-wise, all-powerful actions, but it's arising out of this fundamental notion, at least with regard to the present sermon, that God is in that place, actively present. By some fortunate circumstances, you call it, says Spurgeon, you, you rose in life, God was there. But by a reverse, as you name it, you soon fell back again. 
God was there. So even in these most personal elements of life, Spurgeon is saying that whether you're rising or falling, whether you're speaking of a, a nation and a kingdom uh, a, or a, an individual, a gnat or an angel, God is as much present in the highest as in the lowest, in the greatest as in the smallest. He is in your circumstances today. And then the third element, the great kingdom of which the truth holds good in a yet more evident manner, the kingdom of grace. This is uh, perhaps where Spurgeon really wants to lay his emphasis that God must be at work in these places. God must be present in the kingdom of grace because otherwise there would have been no salvation. And so he, he says that wherever the kingdom of God is present, wherever the missionary is laboring, wherever the uh, child of God is denying themselves, wherever the uh, worker in, in Christ's kingdom is laboring hard. God is in that place and he who has eyes to see will soon perceive, perceive his presence there. Where the sigh is heaving, says the preacher, where the tear is falling, where the song is rising, where the desire is burning, hope anticipating, faith abiding, love overflowing, patience suffering and zeal abounding, God is surely present. What a beautiful description there of the way in which we we trace, as it were, the uh, the streams back to the fountain. Where there is spiritual reality, it is because God the Spirit is present. And so he says, I shall turn from this point when I've just made the remark that we are still so apt to think that God is not here. We remember the splendid picture which God gives himself. Heaven is my throne earth is my footstool, but we do not always remember and consider and grasp a hold of the fact that God is near at hand. He says we cannot comprehend the Lord at all, but we may think of him as he represents himself to us under human representations, and that's how you get these things into your mind. God is greater than the greatest thought, his head higher than heaven, his feet lower than the deepest hell, earth his footstool, heaven his throne. And that kind of imagery helps us to ground this reality. And so now he moves on to his second heading. How are we to recognize this presence of God? It is one thing for us to say, well, I, I can uh, go into the fields and into the woods and there I can find him. I can go into the cities and there I can find him. One thing to say that I can look around at his government of the world and I see him present. One thing to say that I consider how he operates in the kingdom of his grace and I recognize his actions. But by what spirit or with what disposition what is the outlook or the character of somebody who can actually see this? For there are many who see all of the things that a believer sees and yet do not see God in them. And says Spurgeon, there's nothing in their nature that is akin to him. There's no family reality. There's no family dynamic there. And so, says Spurgeon, if you are to feel God's presence, you must have an affinity to his nature. When the soul has the spirit of adoption, it soon finds out its father. When your spirit has a desire after holiness, it will soon discover the presence of him who is holiness itself. 
And so essentially Spurgeon seems to be saying here that when we are like God, when we are thinking God's thoughts after him, to use that phrase, when we are uh, inclined toward him, when we are full of affection for him, when we know that we have been born of him, there's a readiness to see then God at work among us. Next, there must be calmness of spirit. There needs to be a a, a sense of quietness. Uh, often we are simply too busy, too rushed about, too disordered, too agitated. Spurgeon's point is that Jacob knew that God was there when he woke in the morning. He had been troubled and vexed and disturbed before. He was calmed by the dream that he had. He woke refreshed and the noise of his troubled thoughts was gone and he heard the voice of God. Then, in addition to this calmness of mind, and in some senses we might add created by it, there was a revelation of Christ. Remember Jacob's dream. It was of that ladder that stretched from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth, and the angels going up and down upon it. A picture of Christ in the exposition. Bear in mind, just as an aside here, that Spurgeon expounds his text. He reads through it with comments uh, separate from the sermon that he preaches upon it. Uh, but that's what he refers to there. So he's already told his congregation that the ladder is a picture of Christ, a picture of the access between man and God. And he says, You'll never perceive God in nature until you have learned to see God in grace. Now, that's also an important point. We do not climb from nature to grace. It is not possible for us to do that. But having seen God in accordance with his gracious operations in our heart, then we are able to discern him in the world that he has made. And here's the point that we referred to earlier. We've heard a great deal, says Spurgeon, about men worshipping in the forest glades who never frequent the sanctuary of the saints. You have heard much, but there was little truth in it. You perhaps know yourself, people who say, why do I need to go to church? My answer would be, need to? Why wouldn't you want to? I can worship God out in the fields and uh, on the hills and by the rivers. Well, you can, and in some measure, certainly you should. But the place where you gather to worship him is where his people are, on the Lord's day, in accordance with his command and under the influences of his spirit. So when I see Christ, I see God's new and living way between my soul and my God most clear and pleasant. I come to my God at once, and finding him in Christ, I find him everywhere else besides. Then, says Spurgeon, remember the promise that God has made to be with you, and faith will look to the fulfilment of it. In Jacob's case, God had said, I'll be with you wherever you go, and I will not leave you. Spurgeon asks, have you heard the same from God? Do you know the 23rd Psalm, for example? Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. When you grasp these promises, it will not be difficult to perceive the presence of God. And says Spurgeon, I wish we could get back to the spirit of the old Puritans who believed in a present God always and suggests that speculation about the laws of nature may have robbed us of the ability to see God at work who makes those laws. 
The Puritans, he says, look to the lawgiver rather than to the law, and to the present power of God manifest in his present hand rather than to any power which some dream may exist in matter itself or in the laws of matter. Oh, then to feel God everywhere, in the little as well as in the great, in our risings up and in our sittings down, in our goings forth and in our comings in. I can conceive of no life more blessed and of no spirit more akin to the spirit of the glorified than the mind and heart of the man who lives in God and knows and feels that God is everywhere present, is ever, ever present with him. Let's at least consider that perhaps the, the modern mindset, and it creeps into the church, that uh, essentially depersonalizes the world in which we live and the universe may continue to lose sight of the lawgiver, may recognize almost the work of God without taking account of God himself. And we can Christianize this secular mindset where because we're all so clever and we understand how the world works, or at least we think we do, we lose sight of the fact that it is God who makes it to work and God who undertakes all things in it. Now we must move on because some concluding remarks follow. This is Spurgeon's third point. Remember, he's looked at the doctrine. He's asked how we can enter into the experience of recognizing God's presence. And now he's asking what happens when we recognize that God is in every place. And he's got a number of different angles that he wants to take here, all of them eminently practical. The first is to check our inordinate levity. Now, he's talking about uh, foolish lightness of heart that is out of place and out of proportion. That's what inordinate levity is. Cheerfulness, he says, is a virtue. Levity is a vice. How much foolish talking, how much jesting which is not convenient or appropriate would at once end if we said, surely God is in this place. Spurgeon, as perhaps you know, has no problem with clean and healthy humour. But he says, what if it's connected with uncleanness or with any sort of wickedness? Don't you need to remember that God is in this place so that even in our recreations with regard to what we, we hear or say or see, are we remembering that God is there? And then that uh, is not just about how we hear, it's also about uh, what we say. If we felt that God was in the place, how much oftener would we talk of him and of Christ? And he puts his finger on it very specifically with regard to the congregation. This afternoon, what will many of you talk of? Sunday afternoon talk is generally a great difficulty to some professors, that is to some who profess faith in Jesus. They do not like to go right down into what they think worldly conversation, so they generally talk about ministers. They consider that to be a spiritual subject, and generally this talk about ministers is more wicked than talk about the devil himself, for I had rather you should speak religiously concerning Satan than irreligiously concerning even the angels or messengers of the churches. And so it becomes essentially, says Spurgeon, a kind of gossip um, a, a recounting of stories. Oh, did you hear about this? Or did you hear about that? Or uh, is he fallen out with him? Or is he working with them? Or uh, is he at that conference? Or whatever it may be. And it's just tittle-tattle. There's nothing really substantial about it. So says Spurgeon, think first about what you ought not to say 
and then think about how you would speak if you were conscious that God is in the place. Then he turns to some practical concerns and he has these various classes of people. He talks about those who've been exposed to personal danger and peril, those who are in great poverty, those who face sore trouble at home, those who are in very deep affliction, those who are called today to some extraordinary duty. And he very briefly describes each of these cases and then asks, what difference does it make to know that God is in this place? You've been exposed to danger and peril, but is God in the place? Then there is comfort for you. Are you in great poverty? You go home today to bare walls and you uh, you sit upon battered tables and chairs. You don't sit at a, on a table, but well, you might, but uh, primarily you're sitting on a battered chair and at a battered table. You might not have very much in the way of food and drink. Are you going to find your comfort in knowing that God is with you? Now, Spurgeon's not saying that therefore you can go starving and God's presence doesn't uh, is going to make all the difference. But when you are hungry, do you recognize that your God is with you? Or you have sore trouble at home. You've got an ungodly husband or you've got sons and daughters going home to a household which is far from what it ought to be, wicked parents. Uh, you you may be going, says Spurgeon, into a into a dungeon like John Bunyan did, but God is in the place, and it makes the worst place a palace. Or deep affliction, you're driven to uh, such straits that you do not know where things will end. You're in great despondency, but God is with you. Or you're called to a duty that is uh, too much for you. You're not strong enough to do it. How do you approach it? You go to it for surely God is in this place. Perhaps you have to speak to a, a congregation for the first time. God is in the place. He will help you. The arm will not be far off on which you have to lean. The divine strength will not be remote to which you have to look. And so whether it's the particular challenges that we face, the particular difficulties we have to deal with, God is in the place. Spurgeon says he could go on multiplying pictures and might not describe the condition of one-tenth of my hearers. So these are to be seen as representative samples, the kinds of circumstances in which we need to remember that God is with us so that this transforms our outlook and our expectation. And Spurgeon says, I'm going to leave it to you or to the blessed Spirit of God to make an application to your own lot, and you shall find this to be a very well of comfort springing up with clear, transparent water of life. Surely God is in this place. So uh, it's it's a little bit confused, or at least unclear at this point, but it seems then that you've got two main thrusts of application so far. The first is to to check what we say and uh, and how we speak, to stop us speaking foolishly and to prompt us to speak wisely and profitably. Then the second element is one of comfort in distresses. And you can think about the wide variety of challenges and difficulties that a child of God might face. And says Spurgeon, that's when you need to remember God is in the place where you are. And then further, he says, lastly, and as so many preachers do, there's something after the lastly, 
But he says, if we always remembered that God was where we are, what reverence would it inspire when we are in his house, in the place particularly and specially set apart for his service? So uh, Spurgeon's point now is not, again, that the, the place itself is somehow holy. Uh, we need to remember that that's something he emphasizes again and again, but that the, the, the gathering of God's people for worship, the assembly of the saints, when we are in that place, God is present in a particular way. It is not the place that is holy. Holiness does not attach itself to anything but moral virtues and intelligent beings. There cannot be holy bricks and holy stones. The thing is absolutely impossible. But where two or three are met together in Christ's name, there he is in the midst of them. And so says Spurgeon, you need to think about the fact that when you gather for the worship of God, there's a real significance to the time, the place, the occasion. And you've got too much going on in your minds. You're, you're there just for the sake of it, just to, to show that you're around. But you ought to be not thinking about other things, not just going through the motions. There ought never to be employed in churches and chapels, says Spurgeon, pew openers who are not converted, for they will not be converted afterwards. I suppose the case of a pew opener being converted after taking the office was never known. Now, what on earth is he talking about? These are people whose job it is to be in the building and, he says, too easily becoming accustomed to the mere forms of worship. They have to do with the externals of the house, but they know nothing of the internal. They are occupied with the shell. They cannot think of the kernel. It is dangerous, says the preacher, to get into the habit of just going about religious business without a consciousness of God's presence. And to, to be in that state can dull your mind so that you lose sight of it altogether and never really wrestle with it. And then here's his final, lastly, what a restraint from sin would this thought be if it could be painted upon our very soul? A man once took his child with him while he went out to steal from a neighbor's stack and he said to the boy, look about you for fear anyone should see your father. The boy had read the scriptures. He looked all around. His father said, are you checking it all every direction? He said, no, father, there is somebody looking. Who is it? Said the father. Father, said the son, you've not looked up and there is God looking down upon you. He's got some interesting phrases in this last paragraph. Nature is God's great photographer, photographing every act you do, nay, every thought that you feel as it prints itself upon your brain and upon your brow. Here then is what we would call the fear of the Lord, the consciousness of God's eye upon us. And says Spurgeon, you would find at the last great day the picture of everything that you have done preserved. For he shall speak to the beam out of the wall, and it shall tell what you did, and he shall speak to the wall itself, and it shall reveal the picture of the uplifted hand and of the dark deed. You are always seen. So when God abides in our very thoughts, then he is before our eyes, and the knowledge of the law giver in our midst would prevent the breaking of the law. This then is uh, Spurgeon's treatment of Jacob's waking exclamation, surely the Lord is in this place. 
God is present not just where Jacob was, but everywhere. It is recognised by those whose hearts are disposed toward him and trained to consider him, and it has this potent effect on our speaking, on our comforts, on our worship, and on our tendency to sin. May God help us to take these things to heart, not just, again, as a mere study in words, but for the sake of our own souls. Now, next week, we're going to be looking at Sermon 402, the joint heirs and their divine portion, heirs together with Christ and heirs of God. So I hope you'll be able to join us on that occasion, and I trust that God will bless you in the meantime. Thank you for listening, and do take care, and may God make his face to shine upon you. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. For more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.